welcome to the Fresh Expressions Podcast Season 3. I'm your host, Heather Jalad. I'm a local church pastor and a cultivator of Fresh Expressions, new faith communities that strive to reach new people in unexpected places. In Season 3, we're opening our archive of a decade of useful training materials and sharing some of the talks and workshops that have inspired us over the years. This season is brought to you by FX Connect. FX Connect is an online community of church leaders who are reaching new people in new places and where you can find an entire library of practical and inspiring training materials. You can register for free today at fxconnectus.org. We are back with another episode of the Fresh Expressions podcast today with Chris Beckert and Verlin Fosner talking about telling Jesus stories. I know you will love this talk because it is so, so practical. Uh, Verlin Fosner is the founder and father of the Dinner Church Movement in Seattle, Washington, and leader of the Dinner Church Collective. Seattle is a place where 5% of the community or the population actually attend church. The Dinner Church Movement in Seattle has been multiplicative in that now there are dinner church gatherings happening every night of the week, sometimes more than one happening um, each night of the week across the city and a number of different neighborhoods. I know that Verlin's book, Welcome to Dinner Church, is one that has been an absolute primer for all of the teams that I have trained and deployed for uh, dinner church gatherings in my own ministry. And his story unfolds in his book, Building Bridges by Breaking Bread, and is um, quite a story of what God is doing in and through his ministry indeed. Uh, Chris Beckert is the lead pastor of Table Life Church in Pennsylvania. She has been called the pastor of fun. She loves to run and play hockey and enjoys all things pumpkin spice. Uh, so if you're ever near Chris Beckert, you need to make sure you get her something with pumpkin spice in it. She is a mission uh, strategist and trainer as well on the Fresh Expressions North America team and um, one that I am um, happy to call my sister. She is has started herself more than a few dinner churches as well. In this conversation, you'll hear Verlin emphasizing the Gospels as foundational to our faith. And he argues that the further we get from these Jesus stories, the further we get from evangelism. And also how the simplest stories to us break into the hearts of people that are far from God. I really appreciate the practicality of this conversation as well. Um, as Chris shares uh, by walking us through what it looks like to tell a Jesus story, inviting people into a sermonic conversation with time for testimony and reflection along the way. If you enjoy this conversation, if you have questions to ask, if you want to know more, you can find us over on the fxconnectus.org. Uh, application and online. I'll also encourage you to head over to groups 
on the on um, fxconnectus.org, uh, there is a group specifically created for conversations continuing around the podcast. I love to be in conversation with you there. So check that out. Take a look and enjoy this talk by Chris Beckert and Verlin Fosner. We uh, live in a day that has broad-brushed all things scripture across all people uh, in all times and all ways in equal form. Uh, and in so doing, we have avalanched over a very potent centerpiece of the scriptures. Uh, and we are recognizing the more and more that, that, that fresh expressions are getting out to the front lines of the gospel that there is a particular approach to the gospel that is really needed, a language of the gospel that is really needed out on the front lines, and it has to do with, not surprising, the gospel itself, or in particular, the Jesus stories. I think there's a lot of people that talk about the Jesus story as a big, long, paragraphical narrative without appreciating the power of the unique individual stories. 468 of them, actually. Uh, and that was actually the speaking content that the first church had. And that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time on. I absolutely love the Bible. I love the scriptures. I read them. I teach from them. I cry over them. Uh, I spend a lot of time in them. And it has taken me a little bit of, of work to come to the realization that while all scripture is inspired, it's not necessarily all equal. In fact, uh, if you've studied a little bit more deeply in the uh, written word as being a perfect shadow of the living word, then of course, a lot of your Old Testament verses are looking in anticipation of the coming of Christ. And your, your New Testament verses are looking back in reflection of the coming of Christ, making the stories about Christ the high point in the center, right? And this is what we uh, actually are coming to terms with a little bit better. I think this slide got disjointed just a touch, but um, a guy by the name of David Olson did a really interesting job uh, crafting scripture in a topographical illustration, if you will, uh, of which he pointed out that, uh, you know, the law and the prophets and the writings, they all, in an anticipatory and even prophetic way, leaned into getting the readers ready and prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And then comes the Gospels, which is the fulfillment of all of those hundreds of years of, of written, uh, uh, written holy writ, if you will. And then, of course, you get to Acts and the Epistles and Revelation, and they all have this reflection. They stand in existence because of what happened with the life of Jesus. And so when I say that, make that statement about all gospels are, in, I mean, all scripture is inspired, but maybe it's not all equal. This is what I'm talking about here, is that there is this center high point with uh, the stories and the life of Jesus that really needs to be honored for the high point that it is. And the rest of scriptures are uh, antithetical, they're parenthetical, they're helpful, they're supportive, they are confirming, they are uh, in all kinds of ways significant, 
but they're not the same as the stories that come from the life of Jesus. The stories that Jesus told and the stories that Jesus lived. The kerygma. And in fact, the term kerygma, from which we get the word preach, actually has its initial etymology in the stories that Jesus told or the stories that Jesus lived. That's what the actual kerygma is. And here we are, you know, a couple of thousand years later, we've sort of interpreted preaching as, well, you just get a little bit louder, (laughs) a little bit more uh, vigorous in your teaching. But primarily, when we are uh, up front, our our presentations are almost all um, uh, flow from the Didache, or they flow from the teaching-based sets of understandings. That's how we build our sermons. Uh, And lost in the wash are these versions of preaching that are flowing directly and connected to the very simple retelling uh, of the, from the life of Jesus. David Olson talks about how popular theology comes mostly from the epistles when it needs to actually come from the gospels. There's something really powerful when we become genuinely gospel-centric. And by that, I don't mean the story of Jesus. I mean the stories of Jesus. There's, there's a tremendous biblical and interpretive order that is put in place when we re-centralize the gospel stories as the high point of the book. Alan Hirsch talks about how it actually creates a strange distortion when we use all of scripture to interpret the gospels rather than using the gospels to create the filter with which we interpret all other scriptures and especially the epistles. And this strange distortion is something we've got oddly used to. We've got way too used to it, in fact. And it's something that we've got to like step away from to come back to allow the importance of the gospels to arise back to their appropriate place. I was uh, raised in a, in a church that all of the parables and the Jesus stories, well, all of that was served to me in living color, uh, flannel graphs, uh, when I was in elementary age classes. But then when I got into junior high, well, the flannographs went away and we started moving into deeper teachings, I guess, because we never really revisited the simple stories of Jesus again. And my interpretation after going through high school and on into college and even into seminary training, and we just sort of, we, we sort of reserved the Jesus stories for the children and the entry-level material. And yet that's where the real power is found. Even Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospels. I am not ashamed, in other words, of the Jesus stories is what I absolutely and very deeply believe is what he was meaning by all that because that was their preaching content of the day. Of course, that's what he would have meant. And I'm not ashamed because that's where the power of God is found. Uh, unto salvation for, for the educated and uneducated Gentiles alike. Uh, there is something really potent and really powerful uh, about this. And Paul did not plant churches like we plant churches either. He really planted the Jesus stories around tables. <laughs> That's just a kind of a whole uh, another conversation that we don't have time for today. But Romans 10 brings an interesting verse to us about how faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Now in this era of the book, this era where the Gutenberg Press put copies right in every person's lap uh, in these last 500 years, not something that just the priests had, but now everybody gets their own copy, we've, we've really become very uh, appreciative, which we should, of the full written logos, the full inspired uh, word of God. And we study it and read it and look at it. And it's, it's wonderful to base our life upon it in great ways. But, um, but here we see Paul talking about faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And we've kind of, uh, kind of slipped the idea of, you know, hold up your Bible at that point. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, we kind of pick up the Bible at that point. Um, I would propose that wasn't what Paul meant because it would be another 300 years before that book would be compiled and existed. That's not what he was talking about. As wonderful of a thought as it is, and actually as, as true as it is, God's word does have a certain inspiration of faith, to be sure, absolutely. Um, but that wasn't what he meant. What did he mean when he was talking this way? I believe he was talking about the living word. He was talking about the life of Jesus the stories of Jesus and the stories that Jesus told. I think a very accurate way that a listener uh, or a reader back at that time would have said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the stories of Jesus and the stories that Jesus told. That would be a very fair assumption, especially when you recognize the apostolic idea. Uh, so the word became human and was made, made its home among us, to use uh, uh, a, a different paraphrase there. I mean, a different uh, translation there. Um, that that the, the word was Jesus, right? The life of Jesus, the high point was the life of Jesus, the living word of which so much of the, of the logos actually speaks to, both old looking forward in anticipation and then the new looking back in reflection. Um, we actually see on no less than nine occasions, Paul talked about that when he preached, he just preached Christ. A lot of verses there talking about it. But, uh, you know, he was asked, hey, why don't you, why don't you engage in the, in the rhetoric type of, 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 of speaking format of the day? You're a teacher trained under Gamaliel. You're a smart guy. We want to hear you really f fancify us with great teaching. He said, no, when I preach, I preach about Christ. That's how we preach. That's what the church was doing. They were telling the stories of Jesus and the stories that Jesus told. And today we find ourselves in a little bit of a struggle between the, the, uh, the, the spiritual content and the formation from the Didache and the spiritual content uh, from the Kerygma. Like I said earlier, preaching comes from the root Kerygma. Teaching comes from the word Didache. And we, we, have, uh, we have been uh, serving a form of church that primarily is, uh, is based upon the teaching of scriptures. But of course, this form of church 500 years ago was developed by, uh, by theology professors at a time when Europe was completely Christianized. So it made sense that it would be a, a teaching environment for people who are now needing to learn to become the priest of their own home because the other one is no longer their priest. So there was a sobering, like a, an entry-level theology kind of assumption associated with church. But we live in a very different missiological situation today, don't we? Now we don't have everybody Krishna. Everybody in America is not going to church. Uh, and we live in a, in a place where we need to understand what and how 
has the church communicated when it was highly effective among the secular populations, the Gentiles, the pagans, those that did not have a 700-year history with the law? How does that work and how, uh, how does that flow? And so there is where we begin to see the real need to win back the simple kerygma in its purity, i.e. beginning to preach the stories of Jesus and the stories that Jesus told. Um, we actually um, can see that uh, Jesus' stories has great effect on our Christian formation. Just our Christian formation, if we, if we will let it. The whole of scripture is wonderful, but to begin to say, wow, Lord, you talked about how the house of the, of the, of the wise man was built upon your words, your words. Jesus himself separated out his words as the unique building material for someone to build their life upon. And no matter how bad a storm gets, their, their life is not going to wash away if we can grab a hold of his words in a very faith foundational way. And uh, these are pretty important things. Uh, also the idea of the Jesus stories and the table. There's an awful lot of talk about the upsurgence of the Jesus tables coming back. And of course the Jesus tables with the Jesus stories combined is what made them so potent uh, for the first church for those first 300 years. Jesus stories and the stranger. These are things that are pretty, pretty powerful too. You can't really engage in the Jesus stories without beginning to change the way you view the population around you because he has a particular insight for the strangers. Stuff begins to happen in our insights for the strangers as the Jesus stories become very foundational in our life. And keep in mind, we're not talking about huh, doing away with the rest of the Bible. It's all wonderful, it's helpful. It's, it's been given to us by the Lord to be a blessing and be something of great significance, but I don't believe it was intended to avalanche over the all-important stories of Jesus and stories of Jesus' life because that is a language that can be spoken outside of the church as much as inside of the church. And, uh, and the secular population actually are very intrigued by the Jesus stories when entire Bible studies and, and uh, doctrinal uh, layouts and dogmas, and they're not really as interested. I mean, that doesn't like speak a language that compels their heart. The Jesus stories speaks a language that compels their heart. And I think for every inch we've gotten away from the primacy and the supremacy of the Jesus stories, we've, we've lost evangelistic effectiveness among secular peoples. Uh, this is, uh, I think, a very core issue for the church. So Jesus stories really impacts evangelism. Uh, because believe it or not, people in our lost culture, and I'm from Seattle, a very, uh, very secular city, and only 5% of, of Seattle attends church. And yet the fascination is how many of them are totally intrigued to sit down and talk about the life of Jesus, but they're really not interested in coming to a Bible study. See, there's a language there. The kerygma provides a language of, of spirituality that secular people are interested to sit down and say, yeah, let's talk about that. 
Whereas uh, teaching-based stuff kind of requires some, uh, some people that have already been, been brought into the faith and are growing in their faith uh, for them to have uh, that language capacity going on in them. So Jesus' stories and discipleship. I mean, do we really think that Jesus would have come, lived his life upon the earth, and then left without leaving enough information in his life for us to become great people in the faith? <laughs> we almost pretend like we've got, we absolutely have to use all kinds of other sources because the Jesus stuff is for the kids, right? No, the Jesus stories are absolutely there to completely shape our actions and our behaviors. Teaching makes us think. And that's a valuable thing. But the Jesus stories moves us into Christ-like formation behaviorally. It, it, we listen to a Jesus story quite different than we listen to a, a, a biblical teaching. And, there's some, and that's what really starts to pick up both secular um, and, uh, and, and saved alike, Judeos alike. Uh, Jesus stories and leadership. We have been really stunned how many times as of late as the, as the charismatic eyes begin to come on us and we said, Lord, you gotta, you gotta help us really, really uh, value and revalue and reposition your stories in the life of our church. We've got to reach a very secular city. We need a language to do it. We need a faith that is compelling. We need an explanation of our own Christianity that naturally flows from stories that are replicable, repeatable, compelling, stirring in everyone who hears it. And so consequently, they begin to flood because our people are all begin to pray that way and begin to become very compelled and moved by the Jesus stories in their own faith and becoming capable of just those stories beginning to pour out of them because they're being put into them uh, in those kinds of ways. So before long, here it comes out in leadership meetings and in uh, board meetings and in staff meetings. And, uh, you know, we kind of begin to kick back what it is that we're ingesting in the level of import that we are feeling as we're ingesting it. If the Jesus stories is, is the big stuff, if it's the potent stuff, we listen to it with potent expectations, and then it starts coming out in some pretty potent ways. So, our, so many of our leadership decisions started to be shaped by, by parables and by the stuff that used to be the kids' class material. And now our, our group is beginning to think, wow, you know that parable about the wineskin? And if we are going to reach people that are different than us, we probably need a different way of doing church for them rather than insisting that the way we like it's what they've got to do because that breaks the bottle and spills the wine. And yeah, okay, we get that. And so uh, suddenly there was a tremendous amount of leadership thickness that began to flow into us. Um, and then, of course, Jesus stories and preaching. And as we begin to win back the simple, charismatic Jesus stories uh, and begin to pour them forth, wow, it was, it, was, uh, it was a significant change in our conversation with our secular community. I am intrigued by the book of Mark. The book of Mark is uh, an interesting book because young John Mark wasn't old enough to actually be an eyewitness to the things of Christ. He was a 16-year-old kid in which Pastor Peter would come and preach in his mom's upstairs flat, arguably the first church in Jerusalem. And uh, Michael Green has done some wonderful work on this particular aspect of, of church history. 
And here, young John Mark, who could write, would sit down there with his, with his uh, parchments and cross his legs on that, on all the, and that table church, so to speak. And every week, Pastor Peter would come and preach. Here go the book of Mark. The simplest book in the Bible was a real good example of apostolic preaching. That's worth some, some real thought, isn't it? For us to really think, well, wow, what did, what did apostolic preaching really sound like? Well, it kind of tended to be short. And it tended to be very centralized around the life of Jesus. That's why some of the stories in the life of Jesus are out of order in the book of Mark as opposed to the rest. Because it's a 16-year-old kid taking notes from Pastor Peter week after week in this upstairs upper room church uh, there in Jerusalem. And this is really uh, surprisingly indicative of what preaching sounds like. And of course, the church, when they preached this way, when they met this way, were profoundly effective at reaching uh, lost people. A very interesting story out of the Ballard neighborhood in Seattle. One of our pastors uh, is preaching. Ballard's kind of a tough neighborhood. It's where the longshoremen are and where, uh, where you've got uh, people from uh, the fishing industry and you've got interesting contingents of, of, of broken people, even street people, some street people. That's what really, uh, that whole group began to flow into our Ballard church. And um, as, we, uh, as we began to minister and draw that group together, some pretty fascinating things started to happen. Well, one week, uh, Brian uh, told me, and he said, hey, a couple weeks ago, I was preaching in, in Ballard. Funny thing happened. Um, I felt something at the end when I got done preaching. I felt something uh, brush up against my leg, and I, 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 I kind of decided to watch and pray. What was that? And I looked down, and one of these individuals was so moved by what I had just got done speaking. They had, didn't know what to do. They walked up, they came down, they knelt down on the floor and it was this, this tough, rough kind of guy was weeping. And it was his forehead brushing up against my leg. That's what I was feeling. And then after a moment, I heard something on the other side and, uh, and I looked down and it was somebody else that had come up. He didn't know what else to do either. So he got down and he was weeping. And then I heard someone behind me and I kind of glanced and there was another one. And I got done praying and the room was completely quiet as everyone is aware that something really spiritual, quite frankly, is happening. And uh, so Brian said, I didn't know what else to do. So I got down on my knees and began to cry with him. And the whole room, and then they really begin to empty out and come forward. Imagine an environment like that, having an upfront altar call without even anybody telling them what to do. They were hugging each other. Are you okay, man? I mean, it was just, it turned into this melted heart environment with people that just don't do melted heart anything. And uh, so I asked Brian, I said, man, what Jesus story did you preach on? And he goes, I don't remember. <laughs> and he really didn't. He had preached two or three other times since that before he told me. And it really hit me, the stories that seem so simple, almost forgettable, almost simplistically repeatable to us is the stuff that melts down the hearts of some of the toughest people on the planet. That's the charisma. That's the Jesus story. That's why Paul would say, I am, I am not ashamed of these Jesus stories. Man, that's where the power of salvation pours out of heaven and draws people to himself. I am not ashamed of that kind of power. I'm not ashamed of that simplistic kind of preaching. I'm just gonna preach Christ. And that at its core is the power 
of the Jesus stories. Chris is gonna come up and uh, take over at this point. And I think she is even going to do a sample of a Jesus story before you all head out the door. Okay, so um, so I just wanna talk a little bit about um, the kind of reasoning of why telling uh, Jesus stories in this format as opposed to reading a scripture out of the Bible, say for a dinner church, or maybe you're beginning a fresh expressions gathering or that type of thing. Um, I think Verlin did a great job of sharing kind of the, the historical and, and um, scriptural even background for this. But, um, but statistics, I don't know, we've shared a lot of them in the course of uh, this national gathering. But when it comes to stories, I found these statistics fascinating. Um, even as we're approaching Easter, we're in the Lenten season right now, is that 20% of Americans, and I believe this is even way higher for Canada, um, don't know the Easter story or what happened at Easter. A friend of mine um, until about two years ago was one of them. Um, grew up in, a, in a, a, um, a family that did not go to church. He has no church memory except for going to, I think, his grandmom's funeral at some point. 20% um, are unfamiliar with Moses leading Israelites out of Egypt. 30% have no idea who Abraham and Isaac are. And young adults, um, 18 to 30, we have to define that because, you know, you might be 50 and you're still a young adult. If you're in your mind, that's okay. But ethnic minorities also tend to know less about biblical stories than the average respondent. And I think this kind of sticks with us because um, no longer can we assume and, and tell people in our speaking, in our preaching, in our, our, our teaching and sharing, we can't say the words, you all remember blank. I do that as a pastor. It slips out of my mind. Well, you, you remember the story of whatever and then move on. We can't assume that at all, especially when we're talking about connecting with secular people, people that have not gone to church. We need to be very careful of the language that we use, first of all, when we're talking to folks and making assumptions can often be the piece that puts people out to the side. But, but you all know the power of stories. I mean, has it ever happened to you that if you're a pastor, maybe you were giving a sermon or a message and, or maybe you're a non-ordained minister, layperson, as some people say, that you were giving a talk and then later somebody came up to you to tell you how a story that you had told impacted them. They might not be able to recall the scripture, maybe even the topic, but how you told a story. This happened a few weeks ago when I was sharing a message about healing and walking through the place of Capernaum where lots of healings took place. And in that message, I told the story of a friend of mine from a, a previous church that I'd served at who had passed away the week before of ALS. She had a three-year battle since she had been diagnosed and I talked about how we had prayed, I and my friends and folks from the other church, we had prayed for her healing. She was a saint in so many regards. She had spent years in children's ministry serving. She prayed for hours on end for so many different people. And she felt, she was so faithful and felt close to Jesus. And it was so interesting about her faith and how even though she was not healed physically, that she still I believe had received healing spiritually. 
And as I taught that, I, uh, about a day or so later, I had a young adult in the congregation come up to me and thank me, not for teaching a principle of how we should remain faithful and strong despite suffering, or how what we should do, the five points to do when healing does not come, but because of the story that I had told and shared. And uh, we hear the words, and John tells us, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Stories really take abstract principles, love, generosity, selflessness, sadness, and they incarnate them. And I think that's part of the reason why Jesus walked among us, that we would understand that. So um, just a, a little quiz here um, to kind of drill in my point here. Can you finish the following sentences? So I want you to think of movies and stories that probably you have remembered. So fill in the blank. Dorothy finds herself in a strange magical land called Oz. After a tornado picks her up, we had a tornado today almost, um, had a tornado picks her up from her home in Kansas. You remember those things because you remember the story. Um, how about this one? There's a lab that opens an experimental theme park and during a preview tour, it suffers a major power failure and blank get out. Dinosaurs get out and start running the place and eating people. You remember the story. A troubled child finds an alien who likes to eat Reese's Pieces and drink Coke, and there's a race to try to get him back to his home. E.T., right? How about the la this last one? There's a missing gold-covered wooden chest during World War II believed to be in possession by the Nazis. And the U.S. government commissions an archaeologist named Indiana Jones to retrieve it. These things stick with us because we know the story. It's less about the teaching of facts and those ideas and rather the story. And stories are proven to aid in memory. Um, actually different, if you didn't know this, areas of your brain actually light up when you hear a story versus being given a talk or information about an idea. Um, when somebody's listening to a narrative, it's said that actually your pulse begins to sync with the rhythm of the story. That certain neural circuits in our brains um, are activated during emotional parts of the story that we begin to connect with. And so that's what causes listeners, you and I, when we hear a good story, we begin to resonate it with it. And then even hours later, we'll begin to chew on it some more and it'll be in your memory after you watch a movie or you hear someone tell something at a dinner that, that it can actually drive a broader range, uh, change in our attitudes. And actually in healthcare, anybody that's in healthcare industry here, or service, um, people are more likely to change their lifestyles. I think this applies to the church, more likely to change their lifestyles when they identify with someone who has made the same change. Let it be after a heart attack or a stroke or something or, or a cancer. And so it's so important that we harness the power of stories in our work. So, so I want to share with you, so how do you do this? How do you do this? 
How do you tell a Jesus story? How do you translate maybe a scripture, the scriptural version into a storytelling version? Um, and so in, in dinner church, uh, this doesn't go for any every dinner church, but many dinner churches t- tend to take this kind of pattern, that there's kind of these three parts of storytelling, a testimonial, and a reflection in prayer. And I'll be doing this for you in just a minute to kind of give you an example of how I've done this in, with with um, our people, but um, basically storytelling. So this is not a long thing, as Verlin said. You don't want to be speaking. You're not doing a 30-minute, 40-minute sermon by any means. Instead, the speaker's sharing about maybe seven to 10 minutes maximum, and I would even say even shorter. And and sometimes sometimes that involves the reading of the scripture, and sometimes it's just the telling in your own words from the Gospels or Acts. Picking a favorite story, starting short. We recommend starting short, taking something, a, a, a small pericope in the Gospels that you can easily share. And then the storytelling is followed by the speaker telling about how that particular story has impacted or shaped their life. It's a bit of a testimony or a connection to the story that makes it personal. And then the last part is the inflection and invi- reflection, inviting those that are listening to think about what is the story saying to you? What is this saying to you? And then offering a blessing or prayer among those present. It's very, it's, this is simple. It's very simple stuff. Sometimes we make these things so, so complicated. And so um, in that, how to do this? to take the scripture and first let the story get inside you. So the story I'm gonna tell you in just a minute is a story of favor of mine, Zacchaeus. And I didn't grow up in the Protestant church. I didn't know the whole song that everybody sings about the Zacchaeus climbing up the tree and all that kind of stuff. Um, and many of our uh, the people that you're gonna be ministering to probably don't either. But let the story get inside you. Put yourself in the story. Ask, what do, I, what do I like about this? What Also, what bothers me? Um, I was serving a congregation that I attended. It was a Bible study, and we were talking about the story of the prodigal son. And one of the ladies present, she was um, uh, very outspoken, and she was very honest and said, I don't like this story. And we asked, well, why don't you like it? She said, because the older brother was right. And I was like, maybe that's the point, right? You know, you're feeling exactly what you should be feeling if you're, you kind of make that connection with that. But what don't you like about the story? And it's great to share that, admit that, to say, doesn't this bother you? Even in the middle, what does it say about God? What does it say about me and other people? Where do you see yourself? What will you do with it? How, how will you share it and apply? But then the other piece that piggybacks off that is to let it affect you. Chew on it. How does it make you feel? Is there conflict? Who is Jesus talking to beyond the, the people that are actually in the physical in, in the story as you see? But who is Jesus talking to here in the room? Are there any characters that you specifically identify with or that someone else might? Are there details in the story that has specific meaning for me or something that I don't understand? Does the story make me desire change? Or does it make me think of someone to share it with? And then the last piece is gonna be natural to you or the storyteller. To let it flow out of you. 
Like Verl and I, we're going to tell our Jesus story very, very different as I would expect anyone else to. There may be some similarities. You can learn from others. But practice telling your story to someone else. And I say, I've done this actually in a small group setting. We assigned each person a story. They got to pick what it was. And it was very uncomfortable for some people, but it was a way, it was amazing. And some people get this, somebody got their kids Legos and they had the Legos because they were uncomfortable like looking at people the whole time. So they told the story in our small group with Legos. It was great practice. And I were like, it it was just amazing because I wouldn't have thought of that. But you can use the questions that you have to, to really help you learn about the story naturally. And, and the idea here is not to memorize it, not to make sure you hit every single detail or you say things exactly, but what details are necessary? You know, what, what do, are the things that you want to focus on? How might you introduce that story to different people in a different context? My context here is mainly church leaders. So I'm going to adapt my story to you. <laughs> That's my audience. That's the people that I'm engaging. Uh, and to put the story really in words that are understandable and accurate and interesting. You know, how will you help your listener to want to tell the story to someone else. So I'm gonna share with you this story of Zacchaeus. Now for a minute here, I want you to answer the question in your mind. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt alone in ministry when there was nobody else around to talk to? When you looked around at your denomination and you are different, you think different, you don't get invited to the boards and the meetings and the things that all the special higher-ups get to go to because you're different. And some of it's your fault because you said something that one meeting that you attended, you did something, you kind of have that track record for blowing up things and then you're reappointed to another church for doing so or your bishop has a conversation with you or your district superintendent talks to you and you just feel alone and by yourself. I want you to think of that place because that's the place that Zacchaeus found himself. See, Zacchaeus was a tax collector in this town called Jericho. Now, Jericho, uh, many, many years before, there's another story that took place there where, where a miracle happened and the Israelites were walking around and walls had fallen. And so there's a history in the town that Zacchaeus made his home, but he's a traitor. If you ever been a traitor... You stabbed somebody in the back and you meant to? You wanted to hurt him? Well, Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. And and so tax collectors at that time, I don't know if you paid your taxes yet. I have, and I don't like the tax, dude. So you imagine even in Zacchaeus' time, people didn't like the tax, dude. Well, they didn't like Zacchaeus. And night after night, Zacchaeus was by himself. And alone, and he did his work during the day, and he came back, and he did his own thing, and he probably reflected on on who he was a little bit and his background, and but but also Zacchaeus wasn't very good looking either. <laughs> 
I mean, Zacchaeus, compared to everybody else, he was short. He was of short stature. And Zacchaeus, I imagine, he was working every single day, getting up, going to work, coming back, going eating dinner, going home, going to bed, getting up, doing the rhythm again and again and again. And he was alone. But then, one day, one day, word got around and there wasn't any texting or any kind of that kind of stuff or alarms on your phone that tell you when a tornado is coming, that kind of thing. But, but one day, word got around super quick because Jesus was coming through town and, and Jesus just happened to be going through Jericho. And rumor had it that, that he was coming down the street and, and there were lots and lots of people that wanted to see Jesus because for a couple years now, Jesus had, he like fed lots of people. He had done healings. There were like demons that like went into pigs and stuff. Like there are all these things that people have been telling about who Jesus was. And Zacchaeus heard about it and he wanted to see him too. Because he said, maybe Maybe if I see Jesus, I don't know, there's, there's something, I, I'm drawn to Jesus. There, there's something inside me that wants to see Jesus. And so he went and tried to see Jesus, but he couldn't. Because why? He was short. And you know, all the tall people, right? You sit in front of, in back, behind them in the movie theater, and you're like trying to go like this. When you're in a conference session, and you're trying to look around someone, he, he tried to see Jesus. But then he saw a sycamore fig tree. It was a big tree, and Zacchaeus, when he was a kid, he was the tree-climbing champion among his little group of friends, and so he went up and climbed up this tree to see Jesus, and he held on with one hand and looked with the other, and he imagined he would get to glimpse him for two seconds, and that would be enough, just to say he saw him. Like, you know, you're going down the red carpet, and you could, someone's going down the red carpet, and you could just get to glimpse them or see the famous person in the airport, and that's what he is. He sees him, but Jesus, you know what Jesus does? He, like, sees, sees him too. He sees Zacchaeus too. He sees Zacchaeus. Have you ever felt unseen? or unheard, well, Jesus saw him. And, and not only that, but he said, hey, you in the tree, I'm inviting myself over to your house today. And Zacchaeus is like, oh my gosh, I haven't cleaned in 20, you know, in a couple of months and I'm going to have to, no. What is Zacchaeus, he was so surprised that he looked down at Jesus and said, you're coming over? Oh my gosh, yes, yes, I'm not alone. I won't have to eat dinner alone. I don't have to sit at my table alone. I'm not the outcast by myself. Yeah, 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 Jesus, you, really? Like me and you? And, and then all the people like behind them, they're all going like, what? You know that's Zacchaeus? You know him? Like, he's the one that like did all this stuff. And like, he's a traitor. He doesn't belong here. He doesn't belong. See, Jesus, you're gonna go to his house? And Jesus says, yes, absolutely. And Jesus comes to his house and Zacchaeus Without any word from Jesus that we know, he says, hey, I'm all this money I have from my job, all the people's taxes I've collected, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to make things right. And you know, I know there's a lot of poor in Jericho. Well, I'm going to give like half my stuff to them because they need it more than I do, Jesus. 
and, and, and it didn't make any sense. He just kind of kept rattling on and on. And then he says, you know what? The people that like I've like stolen from sort of like Jesus, like I'm not like confessing that, but, but I'm just going to like give them like four times back what, what I got from them. And imagine Jesus is like, you're going to keep going, right? Go to the next, go to the next. But instead, Jesus, I imagine, stared Zacchaeus in the eye. The Zacchaeus who didn't feel like he belonged anywhere. And he said, today, he smiled, today, today, salvation has come here. The story that God has been telling Zacchaeus for many, many moons, you are now a part of it. You belong. Are you Zacchaeus? I've been Zacchaeus. Sometimes I feel like Zacchaeus right now. Pandemic, otherwise. I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like, does anybody see me? See anything I do? I work so hard, right? Nobody asks me to do this, that, or the other. But Jesus sees it. Jesus not sees it, but he sees me. And perhaps Jesus sees you too. And you don't need the crowds to approve it. You don't need others to applaud it. But you need to know that Jesus notices and that you belong to. So what is, what is that for you? Where do you need to know that you belong? Where do you need to know that you're not alone? That's the story of Zacchaeus. Amen. That is a great example of charismatic preaching right there. Did you notice that the whole time I was up here talking, you were like right up here? And the whole time she was doing that Jesus story, it was like right down stirring your soul. Many of you were smiling. I found myself smiling crazy at, uh, at, at that story. And yet we all know the story, but something got deep, didn't it? That's the power of the Jesus stories. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we live, eat, work, and play by leveraging the creativity and endurance of the inherited church. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church, go to freshexpressions.com backslash how to start. Season three is brought to you by FX Connect, an online community full of other church leaders passionate about reaching new people in new places. Access our entire library of practical and inspiring training materials and connect with other church leaders at fxconnectus.org. Season three of the Fresh Expressions podcast is hosted by me, Heather Jalad. It's edited and produced by Jeanette Statz, Kathleen Blackie, and Chris Morton. Our national director is Dr. Christopher Backert. If you have learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Now, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that his ways may be known on earth and salvation among all nations.